Hi, this is Steve Wick, president of Drive Through RPG, and you're listening to Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. This week, Morris and Jessica talk about pitching their game to a publisher. In the news, Alice is Missing is getting a film adaptation, DM's Guild material is coming to Roll20, Pathfinder Society has a rules update, and more. Plus, a brand new sketch about a suspicious invitation to a noble ball. This week on Morse's unofficial tabletop RPG Talk. This week's podcast is sponsored by Jolly Bodger's Piratical Outfitters, who offer a wide range of parrots, wooden legs, cutlasses, eye patches, tricorns, and beard beads. Whether you're a buccaneer, privateer, or tyrannical scourge of the seas, Jolly Bodger has you covered. It seems to me that the young people have started dressing as pirates recently. They seem to consider it fashionable to wear eye patches and ridiculous hats. What's wrong with a simple robe with gold lace filigree and a vaulted collar? That's what I want to know. All the tabletop role-play news. We aim to amuse and we aim to enthuse. And Morris is unofficial tabletop RPG. Hello, 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 and welcome to Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. I am Russ, aka Morris, or Morris, aka Russ, and with me this week is... It's me, Jessica from EN Publishing, and you will notice a distinct lack of Peter, and hence a lack of hype for my introduction as well. Yeah, we have no Peters. Zero Peters. Zero Peters recording today. I was careful to count, and I've recounted twice... And it's definitely zero. Yeah, they are away this week, but we'll return next week, taking my place, because next week I won't be here. So we're taking it in turns, spending time with you and babysitting you, Russ. That's what's happening. Thanks. I said, I'll do this week, <laughs> you do next week. I assumed you were just trying to avoid each other. <laughs> no, 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 we text all the time. <laughs> Why would that be the case? Well, yeah, so Peter's Peter's on one of those holiday type things. Mm-hmm, very nice. Jet setting around the world. I'm going to be away next week at a wedding, which is very exciting. So. An entire wedding. Mm-hmm. So that'll be good yeah. fun. But this week, normally I'd say we should get on and answer the awfully cheerful question. But we don't have one this week. Oh, no. Nobody got in touch and cared to ask us <laughs> questions. Maybe it's because of the way we answer questions on the podcast. Is it because we answer them too well? <laughs> it must be that. It must be yeah. that. There can be no other thing. But yeah, so I just wanted to uh, let listeners know that if you would like a free copy of the Awfully Cheerful Engine... Uh, tabletop RPG. You can get one simply by asking us a question. And as we didn't have any questions this week, you are likely to have your question answered. And you do mm. that by going on social media, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and asking us a question about anything to do with tabletop RPGs and use the hashtag awfully cheerful questions so we can find it. Or you can send us an email. Uh, so, Russ, and that email is. Morris podcast at gmail.com. So you can send us an email if you don't like social media or too cool for that. And if you're thinking, that's great and all, but I don't know what the awfully cheerful engine is. Boy, do I have news for you, Russ. Next week, on Thursday, July the 7th, we are doing a one-shot of the awfully cheerful engine on you say it. You say it's news for me, but it's not really, because I already knew that. 
Yeah, that's true. But um, but for the listeners, it might be. <laughs> but 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 for the purposes of this podcast, I shall pretend I did not know. So it's it's going to be a really good one. Oh wow! <laughs> it's at seven p.m. Eastern time. It's starting, so that's just before. That's uh, like the three hours before Critical Role starts. So if you're a critter and you're going to watch that, you could watch this first and then jump over across. And the name of the scenario is Bite Me. Uh, for the awfully cheerful engine so it's like a horror comedy heavily inspired by Buffy I noticed in it uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer which is very fun and we've got a great cast of people so I would recommend you go and watch so you can check out I love the trailer that was your voice, wasn't it? That was me. That was your voice I thought it was In any trailer we do which I quickly put together it's me just because I am free uh, <laughs> and therefore excellent value um, but yeah so yeah we've got a little trailer for it so you can check out as well we'll put that in the show notes uh, but yeah so if you'd like to check out what the Awfully Cheerful Engine is and then get a copy for free all you have to do is ask us a hashtag Awfully Cheerful question next week and we may answer it on the show and send you a book right let's do some news shall let's we let's do the news let's do the news okay then so starting in the news mm-hmm. we have got Alice is missing she is so this is a storytelling RPG mm-hmm. which came out like last year or the year before. It crowdfunded in 2020, ago. yeah. Okay. You play it via text messages. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's kind of like a silent RPG. Yeah. You play it via text messages and it came from Hunter's Entertainment. Um, so the designer, Spencer Stark, is going to be co-writing a script for a Paramount big screen version of the game. A movie, if you will. A motion picture. A moving talkie. Yes. So it'll be by the company. So it's going to be produced by Temple Hill Entertainment, Mm -hmm. who you will know. I do. Produced The Fault in Our Stars. Yeah. As you well know. I do. The Maze Runner. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And the Twilight films. They're your favourite, aren't they? They're films. They are films. (laughs) And they exist. And related (laughs) to the one shot Bite Me next week. Was um was the uh, awfully cheerful engine bite me book inspired much by Twilight? Uh, more Buffy, I would say. Okay, but both of them do <laughs> involve like two hundred year old vampires hanging around with a high school girl, yeah, which I find po- incredibly creepy. It is, yeah, it's 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 a little problematic. <laughs> that's, that's one weird trope that seems to seems to happen quite a lot in American <laughs> vampire stuff. It's- yeah, let's move on from that. But then again, that is also what Dracula did, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, I don't think vampires are like- most morally good good people generally, so I don't think they make good life choices a lot. Yeah, they're not they're not good role models generally. Yeah, so no. but um, but yeah, so it's being made into a film, which I think is great because I always think of tabletop RPGs as being an art form, a storytelling art form, in the same way films are. So I really like seeing them kind of blend the genres in that way. Because there's also the Dungeons & Dragons film coming out as well, which we've talked about before. Which is going to be amazing. (laughs) But it's also great to see other indie tabletop RPGs, you know, being picked up for films and things as well. But speaking of vampires, Vampire the Masquerade Nexus has their digital toolkit uh, online now. It's available in early access, so not everything is there. Um, but they've got yeah. loads of really cool stuff for people to play the game on there. Yeah, so this is from Demiplane. And yes. Demiplane, one of the uh, lead people involved with Demiplane is one of the co-founders of D&D Beyond. Mm-hmm. We left like last year or year before. So basically, what Demiplane does is make D&D Beyond type platforms for other companies. So they did one for part. They started with Pathfinder. Yeah. Um, they've got this vampire one just launching now. And I, I can't remember what the other ones are, but there are some, there are some other ones that it's got on there. It's got three or four of them. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, you know, it's all quite flashy, as you would expect from from the people who are involved with D&D Beyond. It's yeah. all presented really, really well. It all looks really slick. It's really good. Um, I haven't actually had a chance to really try them out yet because it's not for any of the games that I'm currently playing. Mm. So, But but if I do end up playing one of those games, I would definitely, definitely give Demi Plane a try. Yeah, I think I would as well. It looks really good. They're saying they've got loads of... Um, you can get the rules and things off there, same as D&D Beyond. Mm. Um, they've got matchmaking services to find games and players as well, which I think is really useful. And they've mm. got video chat inside inside the system, which is great. So it means you don't have to have a second like Discord open or something. And they've got a monetization system, so you can tip. And so it means if you're a professional game master, you could like use that existing system. Yeah. So that seems quite All cool. All right. Talking, talking of online platforms, mm-hmm. there we go. This is an actual segue. Oh, well done. Talking of online platforms. <laughs> so D&D, um, DM's Guild, mm-hmm. has partnered up with Roll20. So that now DM's Guild products can now be offered on Roll20. Now, this is one of those weird things, which obviously it wasn't the case. But if you'd asked me a week ago about that, I would have said, yes, I'm pretty sure they do that already. Apparently they don't, because they're now, they, they've just announced they're going to be doing that. Oh, okay. So my memory is totally false on that. I really honestly thought they already did that. Well, maybe it's something you thought, of course, that's so obvious they should be doing that because it's a, yeah, it would be maybe, a good yeah. thing. It's one of those things you're like, it should exist. And Yeah. Well, and given that both agreed. of them are, yeah, both of them are, you know, um, linked to Wizards of the Coast. Well, 20 is a licensee and D&D mm-hmm. um, DM's Guild is half owned by Wizards of the Coast and half by Drive Through RPG. So, you know, it's not like there would be any licensing issues or anything like that. It's just taking the time to, to get it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they announced that on uh, June the 27th, day after my birthday, presumably as a birthday present to me, I assume. Yeah, I assume, yeah. Yeah, I think that's most likely. And, um, yeah, so creators can now list all their creations on World 20. Because, like, D&D Beyond, like, has a rule where if you... Not D and D Beyond, DM Skill. I, I honestly, all these different platforms now are starting to blend into one. <laughs> Which maybe probably is the ultimate goal in like five years' time. They probably will all be one. But um mm. which is DM's Guild doesn't allow you to publish something on another platform. You have so to. So if you DM's put something Guild, on yeah. DM's Guild, you can't have that product selling on your own website, or you can't have that product selling in a shop or Amazon or anywhere else other than DM's Guild. So mm. when when they do these things like allowing you to put it on roll twenty, that is actually an exception to the to the general rule. Yeah. Um, I assume that creators would have to actually do the work to convert them themselves. Yeah, I don't think I don't imagine they're doing it for you. That it'll just yeah. probably be when you set it up on DM's Guild. There'll be also these bits and pieces to sort that out. Hmm. Yeah, because that's that's also interesting because roll twenty being a virtual tabletop platform. Hmm. Which has been around for ages has yep. been a licensee of Wizards of the Coast for ages. Mm-hmm. With rumours that Wizards of the Coast are going to be bringing out their own virtual tabletop platform, like possibly in twenty twenty four with the new version of D anD. D. I mean, it's only rumours and conjecture. Generally, suggests that would that not put them in opposition to Roll Twenty? How that would all work out? I don't know how. I don't know. Maybe they'll blend it in some way. They'd have to buy Roll21st yeah, in that case. Yeah, maybe they surely. will. But then again, they've got other licenses, like Fantasy Grounds also has a similar license to produce. Well, it is like two years away they're planning on doing that. Yeah, so yeah, it could be yeah, available there for two years and they could just be like, and no more. 
Yeah, but if I was a creator and I put all that work in, transferring all my stuff over to Roll20, and then two years later, Wizard of the Coast said, okay, take it off now, I'd be pretty upset. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying it's it's a good thing to do, but I'm just saying it's a thing they could <laughs> <Right>. do. <laughs> like, I think big corporations sometimes do... Uh, don't do things in you know other people's best interest all the time. Yeah, you yeah. may be shocked to hear uh, us. I don't. Yeah. Well, talking of uh, big corporations and things in people's best interests, mm-hmm. moving on to an entirely different topic. So over in the US, they had that whole um, Roe versus Wade overturning um, thing like last week or the week before. Yes. So basically, access to abortion is not a constitutional yeah. right anymore, and so as a result, that's meant a lot of states have like limited access to it or just banned it mm. and so lots of people don't have access to safe healthcare yeah. so there's this uh twitter account called wizards for justice which has appeared mm-hmm. and it is posted an open letter and uh, it says uh, i mean it's it's, it's anonymous because i assume people don't want to get into trouble but well, it's um, becoming illegal there so i guess you have to be careful about these things yeah, um, but I mean, even just the, uh, speaking about it, like, because um, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's basically saying that, it's, well, I'll read it. It's, we, as employees of Wizards of the Coast, are frustrated, disappointed, and completely dissatisfied with Hasbro's out-of-touch, tone-deaf, and lackluster response to Friday's Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's, it's long. It's like 11 tweets mm-hmm. long, so I wouldn't read the whole thing. But um, So basically, it's an anonymous Twitter account which says that it is run by employees of Wizards of the Coast yeah. standing up and saying that they're not happy with what Hasbro, the stance Hasbro has taken. Mm-hmm. I think, basically, Hasbro's response is very corporate. Mm-hmm. And didn't really say anything. Yeah. And what, what people were looking for is support. Yeah. And uh, feel feel that they didn't get that. Well, some companies, I don't know about tabletop RPG ones, but I know just general companies have done things like they said, oh, and as part of your kind of company package, we'll pay for you to have, you know, reproductive health care if you need to pay to travel yeah. out of state or you need to do this, that or the other. So yeah. offered, you know, so there have been responses. So I guess a big corporation like that being based there, not having a response mm. isn't too great. Yeah. And um, they also, Wednesday, June the 29th, that was this Wednesday, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So they also said on Wednesday, June the 29th, they encourage all employees to take a mental health day to reflect and show the solidarity that Hasbro will not. So, 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 so the Twitter account suggested that? The Twitter account suggested that, yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's like a almost like a protest type thing then, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I don't actually know whether that happened or not on Wednesday. Does the account not say anything? No, I don't think so. No, it's just that just that announcement posted okay, over so several tweets. May or may not have happened. Maybe individuals yeah. don't want to yeah. step forward and say but, something. But 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 talking of showing support and solidarity, didn't you have a piece of news you wanted to mention? Uh, yeah. Well, pretty much it was just that. I mean, where Russ and I live in the UK, we're a UK-based company. So, but you know, for from our perspective. Not great situation, uh, but we've noticed that there are lots of people uh, in tabletop RPG community are responding to this news by setting up kind of charity bundles or doing actual play live streams um, and things like that to raise funds um, for reproductive rights for people in the US. We have on EM World we have a weekly kind of um, bundle. What's it? 
RPG freebies, bundles, and sales news. That's the one. So, uh, so that column there every week does like a summary of kind of what's going on with, with bundles and things like that. Um, so as uh, we get things coming out and news coming in about uh, different bundles supporting that, we'll definitely put that on there on EN World so you can check out what's going on with all those things. So if you want to support tabletop RPG things that are supporting kind of reproductive healthcare in the US, then uh, you can go check them out. And if you have any projects you're doing and you want us to include in that, if you go to EN World, there's a contact page where you can send us the details of what you're doing so so we can tell other people about it. Because that's how news works. So there is some news about Pathfinder Society, which is mm-hmm. the organised play for Pathfinder, like their version of um, D&D Adventurers Guild. They are ch- making some changes to the way... Uh, Pathfinder Society works. Now, people who play Pathfinder Society will understand this more than I do. I'm just going to read out what it says. <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily understand it in context. So, basically, there's a big change. There's costs for uncommon ancestries. Yeah. The ancestry boons for the fetchling ancestry will drop to 40 achievement points, while the hobgoblin and cat folk will be reduced to 80 achievement points. Yeah, so I think... Basically, the issue is that some players had some feedback that different players start with different, you know, achievement point levels that wasn't balanced and fair. And I think this is fixing it so that it is. Because obviously with organised play for Pathfinder, things like balance for different characters matter a lot more than if we were just playing a casual game at home, I think. Right, right. Yeah, okay. Um, There's also like seven new backgrounds available. Yeah. Um, These cost four achievement points each. And I won't read them out, but there are seven new backgrounds available which you can take if you're playing Pathfinder Society. Yep, and we got a summary of that on EN World if you want to read about it in detail and a link to the Paizo blog that goes into it in detail. So if you're a Pathfinder Society player and you, you need to be in the know, you can know there. Cause Did it sound like, do you think that we were in the, in the know and knew what we were talking about there? Or, uh, I don't. Or will the don't. listeners see through our cunning deception? <laughs> no, I never <laughs> pretend to know what I'm talking about. Everyone knows. I don't know the rules to any tabletop RPGs. I just turn up and do things. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it works out fine. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, I've not played any organised plays, but I know it is a little bit, just by the nature of what it is, it's a little bit more serious and kind of optimising yeah, your character matters a bit uh, more. Not, yeah, Whereas, I, yeah not, a, not a D&D one, not a Pathfinder I've never played in any organised play. No, neither thing, have so. I. So for me, I wouldn't mind because I always make characters that aren't very optimal anyway. Because so I, if Peter yeah. was here, mm-hmm. Peter plays a lot of Adventurers Guild. So they would know. Yeah, but But they're not, sadly. so anyway... <laughs> Maybe next week they so can... we just have, we just had to make it up and just pretend. <laughs> yeah. This is why there's three of us normally on the podcast because one of us will know. Yeah. yeah, this is this is the true definition of fake it until you make it, isn't it? That's just my entire talking, life. Just keep talking about it, and at some point you'll say something correct. You've just described <laughs> my life. That's just <laughs> right. So, did we mention last week that our maneuver cards were available, or did we not mention it? I don't think. No, we didn't. So you can yeah tell everyone about combat maneuver Let's cards. Do that now, Maneuver cards. So these are a deck of 172 cards, and each one of them has a combat maneuver straight out of the Adventurer's Guide. And you can pre order them right now for, is it 15 quid? Yes. Yeah. Uh, for 15 quid from our website and they'll be shipping uh, August slash September, depending where in the world you are. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. So you can pre-order them now on our website 
at ianpublishingrpg.com. Yeah. Uh, they look lovely. They look really good. They I do. They're great. We've been sent videos of, um, which I think we posted on, I think you posted on Twitter, a video of somebody opening the deck box back at the factory to show us. And mm. I think they're going to be really great. I love having cards like that um, just to help me manage what I'm doing with, if I was playing, you know, D&D before with spells, I'd use cards to help mm. me manage that. So with combat maneuvers, managing the cards this way for level up advanced yeah. edition makes perfect sense to me. Well, this is going to decide whether or not we do more of these, like, spell cards and yeah, stuff as well. So exactly. So if, if people, if people well. like them and purchase them, we'll definitely do them for, like, spells and other things, you know, for mm. sure. Why not? If yeah. that's what the people want, we will provide. <laughs> Speaking of level-up things... Level yes. Advanced Fifth Edition. Uh, so we had a new actual play from Tabletop Time Roleplay start this week uh, with their Ragtag campaign. The, the first um, kind of season, or chapter one as they call it, uh, was using Dungeons & Dragons Fifth Edition. But for season two, they're using Level Up Advanced Fifth Edition uh, and we're sponsoring them. Um, so you can check that out. But more importantly, if you uh, do an actual play uh, and you're using Level Up Advanced Fifth Edition or you're considering doing it, we would like to sponsor you too. Mm. Uh, so we have a website on enliverpg.com forward slash sponsorship so you can check out all the details of what you need to do to get sponsored and how you apply um but yeah we're pretty we're really open to working with small creators so we're not looking for people that have like massive followings to do it we pretty much just are really excited that level up is now in people's hands we've kind of just finished fulfillment and it's going to start going to retail soon and so we want to see all the awesome stories that people are telling using level up really Yes, we do. So, um, yeah, so check that out on there on Ian Live site. And we're also going to have our actual play coming back in August for the second season of the Starcross Seaway. Mm, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. Well, season two will return. Oh, marvellous. But in the meantime, that's there's the tabletop role play. That's what I'd like play. to hear. Tabletop fan role yeah. play season you can watch in between. Plus many more coming as well. And we'll let you know mm. as our sponsorship a, a bunch of news here. A bunch it's of news. It's all about miniatures. And I always find miniatures are quite a hard topic to cover on a podcast because they are totally a visual medium. Yes. It's like you can, you can do a website and show pictures of the miniatures and people go, ooh, ah, that looks amazing. Mm-hmm. I want one. It's really hard to do on a podcast. Yeah, because right, yeah. Got, <laughs> I'm looking at the cool mini that they got this awesome dragon for and it's a five-inch mm. figure uh, of, a, you know, a dragon that's trapped in the material plane, playing shadows, and it looks really cool. But me just saying that on the podcast, I don't know how interesting that is. Me being like, hey, yeah, I can yeah. see a cool dragon. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but this is one of those things. Look, let's, we've got some minis news. Yeah. We'll stick the link in the show notes for you to see the actual pictures and maybe look at the pictures as as we, as we you hear us talk. But I mean, it, I don't know. <laughs> but they, I'd say, I don't know if we want to summarize, but WizKids are pretty much just, you know, doing loads of um, kits for in store paint night events mm. as well. So if you want to do something that you can actually see, and not just listen to on a podcast. That's the thing you can actually do. So, yeah, there's a painting kit that comes with a load of things. So if you're looking to get into that, uh, into painting, yeah. um, it's available in November 2022. But you can get pre-painted miniatures. That is a thing you that can. exists. I don't think these ones we're talking about that are in the news article this week are. They're all coming out in November 2022, actually. Well, there are some others. We've got some um, dungeon dressings. They're all coming out in November 2022, though. Hmm? All of them. I just noticed. I was reading through the article. Oh, yeah. They're all coming out, coming November, out yeah. November 2022. Yeah. Oh, maybe they just made a big announcement of stuff that's coming out. I don't know. I think that's what it is. I think WizKids Whiz Whiz Kids yeah, were like, Whiz hey, Kids, we're doing month, all yeah. this stuff in November. And we were yeah, like, great, yeah. we will tell the people. So that includes mm-hmm. 
some train and accessories. There's a simple trap set, which has like treasure chests and trap chests and sighting blades and magic plows and poison gas traps. Urn flame. I actually really like the look of this set. Urn flamethrower statues, a rolling sphere, two bear traps, two rotating blade traps, two saw blade traps. All right, this goes on too long. Lots and lots of traps. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot of traps. I actually really, I don't know how useful it would be in play. I just like the idea of it existing. Maybe it would like, if you got the Dungeon Delver's Guide and all the traps and things in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's just you don't tend to use traps in combat. I suppose unless you actually had a trap in the middle of a combat encounter, you probably won't be using miniatures. Yeah, well, some people do have terrain set out for just, you're in this dungeon, off you go. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds like far, far too much work to me. Yeah, I mean, same. <laughs> um, so there's also a merchant's row, which is like a, a marketplace with like um, a, a potions merchant, a tanning rack, a pig, a cow, a grain sack, a square crate, a crate of cabbages. <laughs> what a weird really thing! You things. can buy a miniature of a crate of cabbages. I mean, and <laughs> living the dream. Also, here. for an element of surprise, two covered vendor tables. What could be under Ooh. those covers? We, you know, your imagination is the limit. It could be anything. It could yeah. be anything. Yeah. Oh god, there's a whole load more stuff though. So we've got four warband sets from the D and Icons of the Realm sets. Yeah. Undead Armies, Bugbear Warband, Gishyanki Warband, and a Hobgoblin Warband. I don't know what those are. Warbands are just yeah, sort of like the Bugbear one is like a Bugbear Chief and five different Bugbear miniatures. Oh, okay. So just the, those creatures and oh, okay. Yeah. I yeah, didn't know if little... these were like factions that <laughs> those particular creatures were like under their flag like that was their banner i was like i haven't heard of this i mean i mean i'm not going to sit here and tell you definitely no they are not but i'm not aware of that being the case i think i just i I was thinking too much into it it's it's not that deep this is this is another one of these situations where we're just reading stuff and we don't know about yep definitely (laughs) yeah that's just how we roll there's some pathfinder miniatures as well so if that's your thing there's lots of them uh in there um and apparently there's a big one for pathfinder battles the dragon i was talking about which is a five inch dragon an umbral dragon mm. i wow what's that i don't know yeah it's a dragon trapped between a material plane and a plane okay of you're just reading what it says there so i can do that negative energy yeah but i read it first okay. so therefore, <laughs> therefore i win okay but anyway if that's 80 quid for that figure so it does look very cool it's, it's like an angry dragon he's very annoyed and it's November 2022. How could you tell? I think he looks like he's smiling. From facial expressions. Oh, that looks like a big smile to me. Okay. That looks like a happy dragon. He's cheering and smiling. He doesn't look happy to me, but, you know, <laughs> I guess that's the beauty of role play is that people can interpret things well, differently. Well, I am, as you know, a world-renowned expert on dragon facial expressions. I don't think that's true. I think if anyone would be, it would be me. I'm, I'm Welsh. Like, I'll, of course I know more about dragons. <laughs> You know about red dragon. This is an umbral dragon. Okay, fine. <laughs> anyway, uh, a dragon of you can decide what sort of disposition. I just feel because really, it's, it I, has I really a breath like weapon one. of negative energy. I feel like it is a dragon of negative energy. <laughs> it's not like it's negative like emotional bad energy. Vibes. No, that's, no, I, no, that's what I think it is. It's just like comes in the room, bad vibes straight away. <laughs> oh, I really like it. I think it's a really, really cool looking miniature. I want that one. For $80, it can be yours. I don't want it that much. Well, maybe you can put it on your Christmas list. 
Maybe. Eighty dollars seems a lot for, for five five inches, did you say? Miniature. Yeah. Yeah, that seems sounds like a lot for that size. Well, maybe it's painted, so you don't have to paint it. Well, there is that, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Okay. Oh, there's one other little bit of news I just sort of wanted to very quickly touch on. Mm-hmm. So, um, Ben Riggs' um, history of TSR, as in the original TSR, not the current TSR, is <laughs> doing all the things. Great. Um, uh, comes out, I think, like this month or next month. I think it's maybe next month, something like that. Mm-hmm. And this is, it's called Slaying the Dragon. And it's like a, a secret history of Dungeons and Dragons. And it like covers the rise of TSR, um, the fall of uh, Gary Gygax, um, how Wizards of the Coast rescued D&D, all that, all that sort mm-hmm. of period of history. And um, there's an article over on Dicebreaker, which says 10 things you didn't know about the early history of D&D. So I thought we could quickly whip through them and see how many of the things that they say we didn't know we did in fact not know. Okay, I'm probably not going to know. I haven't looked at them yet. Sure. I have not. Right, I haven't looked at them okay. yet. So I don't know what they are. So I'm going to start scrolling now. Okay. And we'll find out. Tell we'll us the out. news about the early history of TSR, not the current. Thing. Okay. Number one, many legendary D and D creators started out as fans of the game. That that makes it. Yeah, I think I knew that. Doesn't seem unlikely. Does yeah. It? Yeah. I don't it's imagine like, a lot of people get into creating tabletop RPGs that yeah, for the money. It's like saying m- many people who have written Batman comics were fans of Batman. It's kind of you'd expect that, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. Okay. So we're not yeah. starting off okay. strong. Let's let's so, keep going. Zero for one. Yeah. Okay. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was a partially political ploy. Just, Let me scan that. Oh, I see. Okay, that's what they're talking about. Okay. So yeah. So what what happened was um, Dungeons and Dragons was created by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Mm-hmm. Dave, uh, Gary Gygax basically wanted to cut Dave Arneson out of the royalties, and therefore Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was created by Gary Gygax. So that's what uh, they mean by okay. uh, partially a political ploy there. Yeah. So basically, Gary Gygax got all of the royalties. It sounds like you did already know that. I did, I did already know okay. that one. I did know that one. So that's, that's zero. That's zero so far for two. Yeah. Okay, next one. TSR went through generational talents like popcorn. So that means they just hired and fired people very quickly and had a high staff turnover, right? Oh, I guess high staff turnover, if that's what it means. That feels like less of a okay. fact I didn't... <laughs> do you know, I'm like, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know about that one. That seems to seem like a vague statement about how corporations work. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, number four, TSR went up against Batman maker DC Comics and lost. Did not know this one. Oh, there we go. Here we Ooh. go. Tell us all about Here it. Here we go. And what happened there? So, in the late 80s, TSR licensed several of its properties to DC Comics. Um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Dragon Arts, Forgotten Realms, and Spelljammer comic books were produced. Uh, but then TSR decided to produce something they called Comics Modules, which had a comic in the front and a game in the back. Okay. And they got sued by DC Comics for making comics based on these properties that they'd licensed to DC Comics. Well, that makes sense, and their, yeah. And their argument was they've got stats in the back, so they're not comics. Yeah. So that's kind of what happened. And it sounds like, yeah, I, I mean, obviously paraphrasing as I read this, but... Um, I didn't um, know it sounds, that, like they, sounds like they lost that one. Interesting. Four suits of TSR. There we go. Did not know that. Didn't that is not a thing what I knew. Uh, Lorraine Williams, a villain to some and a hero to others. 
So Lorraine Williams is the person who came along, ousted Gary Gygax, took over TSR and ran it very business-like without, uh, allegedly, without any particular love for the um, subject matter. Sounds like you did know about that one as well. Yeah, well, I know I know about her reputation. I don't really... I, I, I wonder if it's true and I wonder how much of that is like how people ask me at conventions when I'm working at <laughs> the end publishing span if I actually like role playing games. Well, yeah. <laughs> I wonder that's, how that's, that's much. A, that's, I think that's a different phenomenon. I think um, Lorraine Williams really is considered to be responsible for the failure of the company in the late 90s. Yeah. And also sort of ousting the creators and things like that. It doesn't seem like a very friendly thing to do. No. I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, she kind of saved the, the company in the 80s, but then crashed it in the 90s. So, I don't know. I don't know. I guess that. That statement, a villain to some and a hero to others, is vague enough that I guess it's true. Yeah. Or that there was a fact that you knew. It was one that I knew, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Williams kept trying to make Buck Rogers happen. Huh. Yeah. So, I did know about that. So, um, yeah. So, Lorraine Williams was part of a trust that owned... Buck Rogers still does, maybe, I guess. Okay. And therefore, she or the trust stood to profit if TSR managed to revive Buck Rogers and make it a thing again. Because okay. obviously, Buck Rogers was around like, in the 70s, I want to say. It was before my time. Yeah, something, something like that. Anyway, anyway, so she wanted to make the Buck Rogers RPG and make Buck Rogers a thing again yeah. in order to, you know, basically it was in her own self-interest. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I knew that one. That's a thing that I knew. How many have we got that I didn't know? Just the one. It's the Batman one, isn't it, so far? Yeah, just the one so far. Just the one. And we're on number seven now. Gosh. Right, I'm just going to read out. We won't talk about them. I'll just read out the last one. So. Okay. So, uh, number seven, the most beloved D&D settings were the worst selling ones. Number eight, TSR liked the Satanic Panic at first. Number nine, a cheesy VCR game was the death knell of TSR. And number ten, Wizards of the Coast tried to buy TSR earlier and failed. There you go. Did you know those things? Uh, probably not. I would say no to that. Well, number 10 on you. The others, no. I didn't. So that was like three you didn't know. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, there we go. That's a thing. And if you'd like to play along at home, you could let us know how many of those <laughs> things you did or did not know in this new exciting segment of Morris's oh, unofficial tabletop RPG talk show. We have the best fun on this podcast. lists of things you may or may not know. <laughs> is that the news? Are we done? I think it is. Okay. I think we've done. Yeah. Well then, my friend, I'm ready. Me too. I can't wait to show off this new hat. It's a mighty fine hat indeed, Jurgle. And what do you think of my new cape? Well, it is magnificent, Bauble. You look like a hero returning from a glorious adventure. Ah, all eyes will be on us tonight, that's for sure. I've waited so long for the Countess's ball. It's all I've been able to think about for weeks. Indeed, it's it's the social highlight of the decade. All the finest dukes and duchesses and... Earls and Viscounts and Barons and Baronesses and Baronets and Knights and Nobles Yeah, yeah, and... Borgle, they'll all be there. And then little old us. Yeah. Um, why did we get invited, Borgle? We're not exactly a royalty. Well, every year, the Countess graciously invites 99 commoners to her ball. We got tickets 49 and 67. <gasps> Wow, what a stroke of luck. Oh, so, so so, which of the rich and famous will be there? 
Oh, let's see, let's see. I have the list here. So we have the Lords Soth, Vader and Voldemort, uh, the Counts Baltar, Dooku and Dracula, the Barons Harkonnen, Mordo and Zemo. Um, Borgol? Hang on, hang on, I'm not finished yet. And there's Lord Blackadder, King Joffrey, Emperor Palpatine, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and of course the Lich King. Um, I mean, they're all very glamorous, to be sure. Um, but don't you think they're a little bit... A little bit what, Jogel? Well, um, evil. Whatever do you mean? Here, here, let me let me look at the list. Yeah, see, there's, there's Dr. Jekyll, uh, Dr. No, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, Dr. Doom. They're, these are all villains. My goodness, I think you're right, Jogel. This isn't a ball, it's a, it's a gathering of supervillains. But- but then why have we been invited? Well, yeah. Why would you invite 99 commoners to your gathering of dastardly fictional nobility? Unless... Unless what, Borgle? Unless we are all part of some nefarious plan. Uh, I mean, I struggle to think what coterie of nays and miscreants would want the likes of us. I shudder to think. Some kind of ritual sacrifice? Mind control? Are we needed for an evil spell, perhaps? Perhaps we're dinner. Well, none of that sounds like much fun to me, Borgle. You know, I, I think we need to alert the authorities. Well, and jeopardise the most glamorous soiree since the Duke's 113th birthday shindig? It's inconceivable. Exactly what they want us to think, my friend. Well, then what do we do? Choosing between missing the social event of the year and near certain death? It's such a close thing. Well, what if we went in disguise? In disguise, Jurgle? We could dress as clowns. Or zombies. Or pirates. Nobody would suspect a thing. So we can go to the Countess's Ball and not be sacrificed to some Elder God from the Far Realm. It's a win-win. I'm glad we got our priorities straight. Hello, everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We just wanted to mention our Patreon. Peter, are you familiar with our Patreon? Oh, is it patreon.com slash Morris? Yes. M-O-R-R-U-S. Patreon.com forward slash Morris. You can find our Patreon, which is what pays for our podcast and buys us all these wonderful microphones and mixers and other little bits and pieces. And wires, so many wires. And all these wires. Uh, we have a load of wonderful Patreon backers at the moment. And yes. those backers get... We cherish you all. Yes, we do cherish them very much. And those backers yes. get bonus content every single week, just as a thank you for uh, for backing our Patreon. And because they're so awesome and so quick off the mark, they also get to like talk to us in our Discord channel, which is pretty good. Mm. And we sometimes even deign to answer that. Uh, but even more importantly, when we have guests coming onto the show, they have the opportunity to ask questions of those guests. Mm. Um, and then we will pass on the questions that we think we, our guests will answer. So please, if you do enjoy the podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Morris. Link will be in the show notes. Yes. And support us, even with just a dollar a month. Every little, every little bit helps. Shall we talk about pub? Well, so we do publishing. 
I'm not sure if you're aware. Allegedly. 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 (laughs) Rumour has it. And a lot of people enjoy making games, whether that's board games or tabletop role-playing games, but they don't uh, want to be a publisher because being a publisher is like, it's a different kind of thing. Lots of spreadsheets, I've noticed. Lots <laughs> so many spreadsheets, yeah. An awful lot of spreadsheets, a lot, of, an awful lot of backs payments. Yeah. And, an awful lot of- and a lot of people want to do the creating and they want to give their product to a publisher to make and get kind of royalties for making making their game or getting paid for writing or whatever it is. Um, so I wanted- This seems like a reasonable thing to want, I think. Definitely. And that's what a lot of people choose to do. And so I wanted to talk about us as because of a publisher, um, our experiences and advice to people that are pitching games to a publisher, whether that be board games or tabletop RPGs. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because you and I both have different experience with this, and mm-hmm. that you've you've had board games pitched to yeah. you. I've had RPGs pitched to me. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see if or how that differs, or if it's the same. I think it is. I think it is different because for reasons we'll get into. But do you, okay. do you want to start? So if um, so, people that are coming to pitch things to you, I assume this will be RPG writers and designers. Mm-hmm. So if I'm if Definitely. I'm a, a designer and I have this idea, how what's the best way to kind of a- approach you for that? Well, you use the use the evil word there, idea, because an idea isn't worth anything. I have a million ideas. Okay. Give me a couple of points. I'll give you a thousand ideas in the space of 10 minutes. Yeah. I've got a lot of ideas. Everyone's got ideas. Okay. Everyone's full of ideas. Mm-hmm. So the the hard part is turning that idea into something. Okay. And that is what's worth something. So, um, you know, you get you get people who say, I'm worried that the publisher will steal my idea. And I was like, they won't. They, you, know, you get you get that in board gaming as well. They've got they've got they've got they've got a million ideas of their own. It's that's not the problem. It's the hard work to turn that idea into a thing is the is the valuable part. Mm-hmm. So you need more than an idea. What do you is, what is, do you um, need? So would you? So what's the um, approach? Think, yeah. So I think in RPGs, it's a little different, probably to board games, because I think you would be approached by someone with a prototype. It. Where is it? Yeah. It is. RPGs, that probably won't happen so much. It's not so much a pitchy setup as a, you know, you make a call for or you commission things mm-hmm. to set up. Yeah. So if someone had a game that they wanted to pitch me, the first thing, don't send it blind, whatever you do. Because A, I am probably not going to read it because if I did read it and then happen to develop something similar you would tell me that I'd stolen your idea when quite possibly I hadn't. So it's the same with movie scripts and stuff, is that people don't tend to read those things blind unless they're solicited. So it's not good to just so, send you an email being like, hey, I just saw your email on the contact page of the site. Here oh, you no, you, you can send an email, but you can't just, like, don't just send a game. Don't yeah. write one and send it to someone and say, hey, do you want to publish this? They probably won't even read that. Mm-hmm. And then five years later, they might publish something with some superficially similar elements, yeah. and you'll go, "Hang on a second, you stole that off me." Yeah. So that's that's the that's the first thing. Don't send something blind because it won't get read. Okay. Because publishers don't read it be, to protect themselves from that happening. Okay. So start off with an email. So yeah, you kind of want a pitch. You kind of want a uh, elevator pitch, I guess. Nothing, nothing too long. A publisher isn't necessarily going to have time to sit down and read an essay. Mm-hmm. So an elevator pitch, maybe a paragraph or two. But in that thing, it can't just be a synopsis of what your idea is. It's got to be how that's going to manifest itself in terms of a product. Yeah. So what you're, what you're pitching is a product, not a concept. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm trying to think of the right words That's here. the same in board games as well. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, don't just say, how about a game about cyberpunk people, but their cartoons like Danger Mouse and, and they're in space or something. Well, that's a really stupid idea, but you know what I mean. Um, you just, are you like, describing yeah, okay. the awfully cheerful engine? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, you know, that's, that's not a pitch. That's just some words strung together. It's, so you kind of, you need some kind of structure to it. You, it's really, I'm really struggling to put into words what I mean. Yeah. I know what I mean. I'm struggling to actually say it. Yeah. Um, you've, got, you've got to be pitching something coherent and solid. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to say. So probably you will have already done a significant amount of work, at least to the extent where you've got an outline of what this thing is. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have written that. You need to have an outline and be ready to send that on request. Yeah. I think is, is, is the way to go. If they haven't even got an outline yet, if it's literally just a couple of paragraphs of your thoughts you haven't really got anything to pitch at that stage. Mm-hmm. Wait until you've got an outline. So if the publisher is interested, they can say, hmm, that's interesting. Okay, let me see your outline. Not the product. Don't send me a 300-page book, please. Send me a one or two-page outline that gives me an idea of what it is exactly you're thinking, what what this product exactly will be. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it looks like a solid, coherent, it looks like a thing. Yeah. Rather than a concept. Sounds good. I think I made sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, from... <laughs> What you were saying before, though, it seems like with RPGs, it's unlikely that publishers are looking for a new product idea from a writer, though. Is that correct? Yeah, because, yeah, generally speaking, what we'll tend to have is either open calls for specific things or we'll literally be commissioning stuff directly from people we know. So really... The question with RPGs is more how do you get your foot in the door so that you're the person that is being commissioned yeah. for stuff. Um, and the way to do that probably is by the open call route. Mm-hmm. Possibly for, for us, and it would be different for other companies, but for us it would probably be right for Insider mm-hmm. or, or something like that first. And that gets you in the door. And then from, and then you, then we know you. We've worked with you before on a small thing like an article. We know whether you meet deadlines. We know whether you write the spec. We know whether, you know, mm-hmm. what the quality of your work is like, whether we have to completely rewrite it or whether it's pretty much good to go and just needs a light editing touch or whatever. Okay. Whether you know whether you know our products or whether we have to, you know, teach, teach you, you that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily a problem if you've got other things to bring to the table. But it is a factor. Yeah. And yeah, so that that's how you do that. But yeah, it is as you said, it's less a pitch of a product because generally speaking, and it's it's more that like, we know what product we're going to make. We just need writers, writers, writers yeah. to make it happen. Yeah, we know what we're doing all through next year, pretty much. Yes, I mean we might insert a few other smaller things like a okay, we're going to do a card deck, we're going to do this or so. Yeah, but the big hardcover books, we know what they yeah. are. And also, the big hardcover books are all books for our existing properties. Yeah. It's, it's not so much a, a case of, okay, this totally brand new thing, would you like to publish it? I think because self-publishing is quite accessible with role-playing games now. If you had this awesome idea for your new tabletop RPG, I kind of would think it's something to self-publish more than going to another publisher. I think that's... Yeah. I don't know if anything... Yeah, I mean, that... Yeah, but as, as you... So before publishing is hard and involves a lot of stuff. If you're self-publishing, you're going to have to deal with the artists, you're going to have to deal with editors, you're going to have to do, you have to do all of that stuff. Which maybe that's not what you want to be doing. You want to be writing awesome words. That's that's true. Um, so going back to, you said open kind of calls for things. We did that Mm. for kind of level up. So Mm. we, we basically put out saying, hey, we want writers to work on this project. Yes. 
what was a good application for that and how would how would you recommend someone approach that as a writer yeah. if they were so we had we had we had quite a good interesting way of approaching that so mike myler was heavily involved in that recruitment process so basically we had a spreadsheet we blinded all the applications mm-hmm. and we had a spreadsheet and we eva- I, I couldn't tell you offhand what all of the things were but we had a spreadsheet of a whole load of things where people would like meet this criteria meet like have they have they got a history of working with 5e click that's one that's you know mm-hmm. one thing we're looking for um you know so there was a whole bunch of different things. And then we pretty much kind of just looked at the scores at the end, picked the top half, and went into those ones in more detail. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we did it. So when we list an open call and we list the things we're looking for, I think it's fairly important to be aware that those things are probably going to be columns on a spreadsheet, which are going to get a ticker across. Yeah, they're the things next you're going to, to be on. Or not necessarily your name, because we will, we will line them for that sort of thing. Yeah. But... And we we did you blind them just to prevent any bias and things like that? Is that yeah, the, yeah, 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 completely to do that as well. But also there was an element of we did want to have a diverse Group. team yeah. as well. And so you know, what we did blind them, we did look at them afterwards and say, ah, oh, good, it's not a whole bunch of middle-aged white men. <laughs> Which, you know, when you blind them, and if, if you blinded them and that had been what had come out, it would have been, okay, what do we, what do, we do now? Yeah. But we I, we got really, really lucky and we looked at the results and it's like, you know, just looking at the qualifications completely blind, we got a really awesome diverse team there, yeah. which we were really happy with. I think the only one that came in non-blind was Paul Hughes. Yeah. Who emailed me saying, I heard you're doing this, I want to be involved. And I was literally in the middle of an email to him. Saying, I would like you when to When that arrived. Involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want you to do our monster book, please. Yeah. So that, that, that was fortuitous, shall we say. So basically listening to the spec that's listed in the casting call and yeah, highlighting that yeah. in your application is pretty much... Yeah. I don't want to put people off the idea of pitching new stuff to publishers because I feel like I've been saying don't do that. Okay. And I don't want to say that. Mm-hmm. Because I, w- I would like to think that in the right circumstances, we would welcome something like that. Yeah. It's just that I feel like the right circumstances for something like that are rare. It has to be the right product for the right publisher. Yeah, you, I think absolutely. an important thing, because board games have some overlaps and some differences. And the thing I always say to people who make board games, games designers, I say, just because your game isn't picked up by a publisher does not mean it's not a good game. There was one you were talking to me about recently. Which oh, the UK board game yes. pitch. Yes. Yeah, which you were like, I like this game. I want it to exist. It's not right for us, but I want a publisher to make it so I can buy it and play yes, it. Yes, that was exactly yeah. that was Platypus I saw at the UK Games Expo. Who I I think I talked about them after UK Games Expo. I mentioned. Yeah, there was a, it was a really it's an amazing board game. It's really great. Mm. I love it. But um, mm-hmm. as when you're a publisher, you've got to think about things that are product and what we're trying to sell. You've got to think about mm. the audience we have as a publisher existing that we know that we can sell to and also the existing brands and lines that we have and where does this product fit into what we already have. So so mm. a really like, obvious example is if, if a company, a publisher is planning on b- bringing out a deck builder of X theme in 2023, they're not going to want to take any pictures for deck builders in, hmm. to publish in 2023 because they they already have one already and it doesn't matter yeah, if yeah, it's yeah. a really good one it's not about the quality of it it's just the fact we have that product and but people hmm. will you know quantify product in kind of different way 
So one thing I'd say for board games designers is when you're pitching, don't just put a pitch out to any any publisher. Because I think sometimes people think, well, if it's a really good game, they'll want it. And it's like, and it's not necessarily... Obviously, we want yeah. it to be a good game, but it has to be a good game that matches the product yeah. we're looking yeah. for. Yeah, they'd be looking for something like us, for example. I mean, we could talk a little bit about it without giving too much away. But basically, we have an interest in doing something small board game or card game mm-hmm. related related to the stuff that we do yeah. that is in the future not set in stone it's not like there's anything in progress at the moment so you know if you listen to this don't get carried away yeah. um but um we we have we have talked about it and basically we would need something that could you know be branded with level up or awfully cheerful engine in some way yeah. or could support those games in some way yeah. rather than being a totally separate kind of thing that doesn't do you yeah, know what yeah I mean? definitely, and that's doesn't have any synergy at all with what we're exactly. doing. Exactly, and that's and that's what I was kind of talking about. And so I would say, as advice, if you're pitching a, a board game to, but this also I think applies to tabletop RPGs as well, is um, know the publisher you're pitching to, their products, and so you can tailor the game for them. Because if you're a game designer, you probably have a lot of games or ideas in your kind of in your repertoire. So you've got to pick mm. the right one. It's kind of like when you send a CV for any job, you should tailor your CV for that specific role to highlight mm. why your experience is good for that one. And it's very much like that. So think about the company and what sort of games they make and what sort of thing they're doing. And also a lot of publishers will just tell you what they're looking for. Because we, we did that with yeah. a designer recently. They um, wanted to pitch some games to us and I was like, oh yeah, this isn't the sort of thing we're looking for. And they said, okay, what are you looking for? And I told them they're like, okay, great, I'll try and make something for that. That's a thing I can. Yeah, work and with. then yeah. and that's yeah. ideal. And a lot of publishers um, will have a page on their site that says, "Hey, we're looking for pictures for this following things." I know Alley Cat Games mm. I used to work for do that. They've got a submissions page, and they very clearly say what they are looking for, um, mm. so you know not to to send them something that's not of interest. Yeah, and if people don't have that, if you email them to ask. And just say, hey, what what are you looking for? Like, what's yeah? I yeah. Well, the other sort of aspect of it is like consider reskinning stuff. So yeah. I, I guess this, this this sounds obvious. Mm-hmm. I suppose now I'm saying it aloud. But if you've got a basic solid game, whether whatever that is, an RPG or a card game mm-hmm. or a board game, and you want to pitch it to a publisher, I'm not saying you have to go and produce a version of it reskinned to their. Yeah that thing and show it to them but when you approach them with this thing think about how you can pitch it to them say right i realize this is um i'm trying to think of an example this is all about um mice greek uh, greek greek armies or okay. mice. it's all about mice <laughs> um, but you yeah. could you could you could reskin it to elves and dwarves quite easily yeah you know or something like that and think about how you would say that to the publisher so you know they don't have to see the finished product and see that you've already done that but you've got to explain to them how, A, indicate you'd be willing to. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing. Yeah. Uh, and B, indicate how that could be done easily enough to fit in with what they're selling. Because we're, we're obviously selling, you know, you know, high fantasy kind of D&D style stuff, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, like a, 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 Unfortunately, nothing of, about taxidermy platypuses. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of examples of genres which we just would not be interested in at all. And I think sort of like if you came to us with like a really complex Napoleonic war game, it's just not, it might be amazing, but it's just not what we could use. Mm-hmm. But if you came and said, ah, but it doesn't have to be Napoleonic, we could easily, you know, this game, we could it, easily yeah. turn these these into elves and these into dwarves or whatever. And then we go, oh, right, okay, I get mm-hmm. you. 
That could work. So yeah, so I think also being open to uh, re yeah retheming it, and I think you do yeah. that a little bit subconsciously. You do that by not spending too much time on the visual side of the game. Because I think so many mm. people think they need a really high quality production of the game they're making to do this, or you know, do a really jazzy layout for your RPG if you're writing. No, in fact, as a publisher, that worries me more that you're really attached to the look and feel of this. And if I take on this project as a publisher, I'm going to change all of that. And is that going to be a problem for you? So actually mm. having something really basic that shows shows me how the game works uh, without all the bells and whistles on is actually better mm. in, in, in Basic my but comprehensible. Yeah, I know it needs to be, I need to be able to play <laughs> it and understand it. But like, yeah. you know, just use like, you know, stock icons and things like that that, Mm. you know just get the point across but is obviously not how it would look that's yeah. that's almost the best way i think to pitch because then we know that yeah you're expecting me as the publisher to do the artwork the, the branding the theming which is which is what my role is yeah so talking about right so let's talk about royalties yeah so that is generally what we're talking about when pitching as opposed to commissioning someone to work on a book that you're producing mm-hmm. when someone comes to you and wants you to publish their game, you're more likely to be talking about royalties than a flat rate commission. For board games, yeah, that's that's what it is. So what sort of numbers are typical for that sort of arrangement? So for, for board games, when you pitch, typically uh, you will get a percentage of sales uh, that the publisher makes. So normally that'll be every, and you would agree that in your contract, that every X amount of time, so maybe every quarter, maybe every year, the publisher will send you a report of the number of sales they've made and how much revenue they've made, and then you get a percentage of that. And that's typically between 3 and 8% of the price. Right, so 5%-ish. Yeah, 5% is, is average, but it, it, I mean, and that yeah. rate varies on how much the game is, like uh, how much the game costs, and also as a designer, like how much your name brings to it. Like you have some really big names in board games design, and they would obviously warrant a higher percentage because some people will see that that designer's name on the the board game and that will make them go and buy the game Uh, but if you're a newer designer then you might not have that effect but you still need to be paid obviously for your your work on it um Mm. so yes it's around that um and you'd have a contract with them yeah but somewhere between three and eight percent so around five percent is kind of and is that net profits or is that gross sales the the wholesale price so right, the price okay. that so that so if it was in distribution, that'd be the price the publisher sells it to the store. Right. So for example, okay. like we do this with tabletop RPGs as well, and it normally you sell about fifty percent off to the store, so the store can sell it at the, the full price mm-hmm. and make their cut of the money. Yeah. So the royalty would be from the fifty percent of the sale. So say you had yeah, a twenty pound game uh, that was sold in shops for twenty pounds, we would the publisher would sell it to a shop for ten pounds, and as mm. the designer you would get you know, 5% of the £10. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, talking of pitches yeah. then, let's think about what some of the cardinal sort of sins would be, the things that you want to try and avoid doing if you can. What's, what's, what do you want not to do when making a pitch? So I would say, A, don't be too wedded to the thing as it is. Yeah. Because the chance that it won't need modification in order to fit in with the publisher's plans are slim to none. Yeah, that's very true. I'd say, yeah, that's very true. So don't be overly attached to the, 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 the theme of it or also tweaks and mechanics and things like that. If you are mm. so persistent and it has to be in this way because it's your art, it's your thing, 
that might be a net game you really need to self-publish, even if you don't want to. But if you're not willing, because working with a publisher is a collaboration. And if you're not willing to collaborate, that's not, it's not going to work. So yeah, I'd agree with you at that point, which we talked about a bit. The second point I'd make is, which we talked about before, is uh, not knowing the publisher. So know the publisher Mm. you're pitching to, what sort of games they pitch, what they're kind of looking for. So you can pitch to that. Yes. And as I say, so you can suggest what, how, tell the publisher how your thing fits into what they do. Yes. Um, another thing, and I'm going to talk more positively about things that are good to have, and obviously the opposite is things right. to not have, just because um, I'd say have a good sell sheet. Um, and a sell mm-hmm. sheet would be a one-page view of what your your board game is. So with, with board mm-hmm. games, actually playing them and testing them as a publisher to see if it's something that fits actually takes a lot of time and investment. And so before we even get to that stage of wanting to play it, I want to know what it is to see if it's a product that will potentially fit what we're trying to do. Mm. So a sell sheet will look something like what you might give to a store um, to say this. It would kind of have a, a very brief summary. It would have like a picture maybe. Um, yeah, a little bit. So it would, yeah, so it'll have a brief summary of what it is. It doesn't need to have the full rules. It's good to sometimes have an attachment to the rules after it linked on it and say, if you want mm. to read the rules, you can get them online here and just do a little hyperlink. But give a yeah. brief summary of what it is. I would say you want... Uh, a component list so a list of what's physically there because for publishers that really matters because we're dealing mm-hmm. with all the costs and creating of it um you definitely need to have your contact details on there because a lot of people forget to do that because if i get a sell sheet and i'm like this looks great but your email or phone number isn't on there for me to to, to talk to you about it mm. that's bad if you have any availability for people to play it with you know without needing to get a copy from you so if you have a print or play or if you have it on online or tabletop simulator or something like that put a link on that sheet as well. So if a publisher looks at it and finds it interesting and they want to play, they can just go off and do that. Mm. Yeah, and then have all the basic key things you'd expect to be on a board game box, like how many players is it for? How how long does it play? What sort of age group do you have in mind for this? So all the things you typically see on a board game box when you're looking at the outside, deciding if you wanted to buy it or play it, kind of those sorts of details on like that. Um, so mm. having a good sell sheet that's clear and concise uh, it's really good. And it doesn't have to be, it has to be clear, but it doesn't have to be professionally graphic designed. Again, that's another thing I think people think. They think, oh, I need to pay a designer to like do something really jazzy and awesome with the art. And no, I don't need that. It needs to just be clear and have the details I need on it. And that's 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 all I, I need yeah. from it to do. But having yeah. that is the best thing. And, and having a range of those ready to go so people can look at them and, and get in touch with you is a really good thing. Um, so that's Because that's your mm. jumping off point. Because I a lot of board games, if you just send me a copy of your game, I likely won't play it because I don't know if it's worth my time to sit down and, and play it and, and run through it and learn the rules and, and do all these things. So first I want this, the sell sheet to have a look to decide if it's worth even pursuing. That's the first hurdle. Yeah. So what what is uh, fun is the idea of, and you did this at UK Games Expo, was the publisher speed dating approach yeah which kind of takes a lot of the figuring out out of that equation because it's set up to allow you to do exactly this so you did this Mm -hmm. um you were the pub on the publisher side Mm -hmm. of it obviously not the and um do you want to describe what that looks like and how that works well so before it begins actually the cell so this is a convention convention, uk games expo and they have um basically uh, an event for designers to pitch to a load of publishers Mm-hmm. Uh, before it even started, there was a selection of who is actually going to be there to do the pitches. So all the designers that applied to be part of the event 
um, mm-hmm. sent in self sheets and they got all sent to all the publishers and we all got to have a look at them and re- we reviewed and put in feedback for which ones we were interested in. So again, that first point of thing was the self sheet. Telling me if yeah. it was useful. Uh, and then based on the votes, they invited 16 of the people that applied to come and pitch their games to people. And how they did it was this. They did it as a really fast elevator pitch. So there were 16 tables set up in the room, like speed dating. <laughs> uh, and the designer had their game set up and they were told they had four minutes to kind of talk through a pitch of their game. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be a minute for the publisher to ask questions afterwards and you move to the next table. So it's a really quick yeah. five minutes. So, yeah, so the designers that did that were all really good, uh, to be honest. Like, they, they all did a really good job. They had they knew they had games that publishers were interested in because that was why they were in the room. Mm-hmm. And I think they were making sure they practiced their pitch for the four minutes, so it was really clear. Um, now, I from this pitch, I didn't know need to know how to play the game. I don't need you to teach me the entire rules in four minutes because that's not the end of this exercise. I need you to tell me about what the game is from a product perspective as the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, now normally they had some prototypes there, so they had something laid out so you could kind of see what the components were. So you were, can see so the you game, could yeah. see it. Yeah. One of them was a very simple card game, and so we did actually the best way. They talked me through, and they're like, "And now we have time to play. Let's do that." And that was great, and that worked really well. But that's because that was a really rules light kind of game, and it suited that game. But the rest of them were a bit more involved and strategic. So it was basically talking through and explaining what it was. So this was like a, a taster, mm. and again, this was to to get me to see if these games were interesting, interesting for me to kind of pick up and were the right product for us as a publisher. And two of those games from that thing uh, were. And so we're, we're, we, we've asked them for their copies of their games and we're playing them now. But this is, again, a much longer process because us playing the games, like if you think about if you play a board game as just a person that enjoys playing games, think about how many times you need to play a game before you really know all the rules inside out and you know mm. all the nuance and the details of it and you really got to grips with it. It's like that you have to do that as a publisher because you have to, because you're spending money on making this thing. <laughs> and if it's a bad game, that's not really good. So, so that's kind of how, how that worked with the, with the playtesting event. Yeah. That, that sounds, I mean, obviously you, you haven't done it from the board game designer's point mm-hmm. of view. Did you get a sense? Did you feel like for them, that was a high pressure thing? Oh, yeah. Or was that, e- or, or was that, was that, or did the format make it easier for them? I think, I think it was high pressure for them. It was like, for them, yeah. they were going to a job interview. For me, it was, I was just right, going around yeah. looking at some games, having a great time. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I tried to be very nice to everybody. And uh, when I spoke to them, because I appreciated they were in like quite a stressful situation. But yeah, they have four mm. minutes to pitch their game and they're doing this four minute pitch again and again mm. and again and again and again. Yeah, like 16 times. So or whatever, yeah. it's, it's a lot. Oh, is it 16 versus 16? Or was how many publishers yeah, were there? Yeah, there were 16, yeah. 16, yeah. Six, 16 designers and 16 publishers. Yeah. Right, right, gotcha. So what they do is they pretty much put out and they say which publishers are interested in being in this event and that tells them how many mm. spaces there are for designers to come along. Mm. So there's nothing like that for RPGs. There's no similar um, similar way of doing how, this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to think of whether there could be even. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not really sure there could be because for car- board yeah, games are, it's different. are physical, whereas RPGs are not generally. Mm. I think is the main difference there. I'm trying to think of what sort of thing you could do to make this process easier for RPGs. And I'm coming short at the moment, just off the top of my head. Yeah. It is, it isn't, there isn't, there just isn't a process really. It's just, it's, it's an organic thing that tends to happen via networking, I guess, is the, yeah. Which isn't ideal. Yeah. So that's ideal, why the casting call. that makes call, it who you know. Yeah, that's yeah. why the casting call went out for level up because you didn't want it to be people we Everyone know. Everyone I know. Yeah. yeah. 
But yeah. I'm not saying I didn't want to be people I know. I'm not saying yeah, the people I know were bad or anything. But no, I think <laughs> just the, what you're saying yeah. is you you didn't want somebody who was really good, a really good writer, to not get the chance to work in this purely for the fact that they didn't know you socially. Yes, that is an excellent anti-nepotism yes. generally. Yes, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean that worked out really well for us. So I I think from a from a publisher's point of view, I would recommend that as an approach. Mm-hmm. Put out an open call, list your criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and then use a spreadsheet, score those criteria, and then look at the top, yeah. however many, in more detail, and and do it like that because that worked out really, really well. We didn't, I think we didn't have one one person that we regret, even not that I would say it on a podcast yeah. anyway. But I specifically regret this. Yeah. What about yeah. what no, about Peter have... Coffee? Yeah. That's the regret, right? Yeah, well, you know, so many regrets. <laughs> but no, we didn't have one person that we regretted working with through that process. It worked really well, I think. Yeah. So, I'd yeah, so that's um, my other tips. Like, I'd say, yeah, so some tips for pitching, I'd say to, um, going back to what I was saying, sorry, before with, with board gamers. So, like, having a good sales sheet, knowing the publisher you're pitching to so you know what sort of products they want. And one thing I'd be able to say is when you're doing your a short pitch, because sometimes you, if you get your sales sheet to a publisher and they're interested, they'll invite you to a short meeting. And this will sometimes be like, maximum half an hour because this is them just feeling out you know what what it is um don't think they have to 100 percent in that meeting understand the rules because um mm. you can leave the rules with them and they can run the rules and the chance the chances are if it's a short thing like that they're not going to yeah i mean if yeah. it's a short card game and the rules take two minutes to explain if you've got something like double then yeah, of course you can. Like, um, yeah, yeah. and the best way to do that would be like, let's play. But if you have a game that's a bit more in depth than that, then obviously that's not the goal. Of the yeah. So if you're talking Warhammer 40k or something, <laughs> that's not going exactly. to happen. Exactly. Um. So don't think that that's the goal of it. So they want to learn about and understand the game. Um. One thing I'd say is make sure your rules book is written as well as you can. And Paul Grogan did a really good talk about rules books. Um, mm. So if you have a look at um, his recommendations for things, but having a rule book that's really easy for a publisher on their own to sit and be able to, you know, read mm. the rules and understand the game is important. And after you've had that meeting with them, have some, like I said, for have something that they can take away and play independently, kind of on their own. Mm. Other things am I missing? Yeah, one thing about the whole playtesting mm-hmm. aspect of things is that generally playtesting should be taking place away from the designer yeah because you don't want the resource of the designer to influence you know yeah. if you could turn around and ask the designer how something works yeah or, or 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 something like that then but the average person at home won't have that resource so yeah you, when you're playtesting you've got to play, try and mimic that's you know yeah. what because we're, we're doing some playtesting coming up soon and we got we're going to be announcing a program where we're actually going to be paying playtesters to play some of our stuff yeah. on video We'll keep the video private. It's not. It's not for broadcast yeah. or anything. So we can sit and watch people playing our stuff and see where the pain points are, where the problems arise, where they get confused, where they get things wrong, and that tells us what we've done wrong. Mm-hmm. Basically, we'll be, we're, we're going to be doing that. But the important thing is those people will be playtesting those things, mm-hmm. but they won't be able to ask us yeah. for clarifications. They won't. We won't be there. We won't be there to explain anything. You know, it's going to be completely like as if they're at home. Yeah. The blind playtesting stage is very important for games to see if the rules as written are clear and work. Because mm. sometimes, as the designer, you it's 
sometimes if you know something, when you write it down to explain it, you miss out something that you don't say because it's so obvious. It seems obvious to you. It's yes. like yeah. with, um, yeah. oh, was it with, oh, is it Roman like architecture and like the type of cement they used to build roads? Loads of um, archaeologists couldn't figure out how to make it properly. And they had the written instructions. Mm. And the written instructions said water and all the other stuff. And one thing it yeah. came out later is that it had to be seawater because of the salt. Right. But the Romans didn't write that in the instructions because it was so obvious to them, of course, you use seawater to do this. Seawater, yeah. Didn't think yeah. So. And I think about in the future with uh, cooking books, if you see all our recipes say add two eggs, they don't say that they're chicken eggs. So mm. do you mean like fish eggs? Do you mean an ostrich egg? Right. Like they're, they're very different. Yeah. Caviar. Exactly. Excellent. Well, that's an egg, yeah. isn't it? So it's yeah. like, um, so it's interesting with, and rule books, if you take that same approach, sometimes you have to be very pedantic and explain it in a way, you know, and that I think part of the th- good thing that comes from having a diverse team means you get over cultural barriers like that because there's so many things that because mm. of culture it is so obvious to us that someone else, it might not be the case might for Might not, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that, I mean, you, you talk about diverse teams, that can even be in the small details just between, like, in my experience, um, someone British and American. Oh, yeah. Like, so, so, someone will be writing something, an American will be writing, and I'll be like, I don't understand what you've, what this means. It's, it's using, you know, it's using some cultural assumptions that I don't yeah. have, or vice versa. Yeah. And that's probably two of the closest cultures mm-hmm. that you're going to find on the planet. Yeah. So, you know, it's definitely important. Yeah. But yeah, so, my point to that for people pitching is make sure your rules are clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, because but obviously the publisher, if they do commit to, to taking on your game and working with you, they will be playtesting that the publisher does. But just to give you mm. the best chance, um, I'd say work on making your rules as clear as possible mm. and do some of your own blind taste, uh, blind tasting, blind testing in advance. Don't taste board games. Well, unless it's an edible one, you can get well, you can some. You can if you want, I suppose. I'm not, I'm not your dad. Do you want. <laughs> <Daddy>. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I'll say those are kind of my kind of recommendations, uh, you know, for pitching to a publisher. And bear it, always think about the publisher's perspective, that they are, they're, they're there to kind of make a, a product. The, the, the baseline assumption is that it's a good game. It's, yeah, mm. of course it's got to be a good game. That goes without saying. But does it fit into this product line that I've got there? Mm. Um, so, yeah. and and if you do pitch to a lot of people and your game doesn't pick, get picked up, it doesn't mean it's not a good game. It just means you haven't found mm. the right publisher for, for your game. Yeah, I mean, so much of this isn't a judgment of quality yeah. whatsoever. It really mm-hmm. isn't. It's just, it's not the right fit for us right yeah. now. I mean, if someone came to me with an RPG supplement proposal, I would... Even if it was the best thing I'd ever seen in my entire life, I would probably have to say, look, in all fairness, you're better off going somewhere else. Because I can't use that right now. We, we know what we're doing for the next yeah. year or so. We're pretty much chock-a-block backed up. Mm-hmm. We've spent the first half of this year developing stuff, which we're going to be, you know, now putting on Kickstarter and stuff over the next year. Yeah. We just don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah. So, and that's not a judgment on quality at mm-hmm. all, in the slightest. Not even vaguely. It's just... It's not for us right now. Yeah. So I think that's a really important thing to take away. And if you enjoy making games, make sure you, I'd say, just keep making them, even if it's just for the enjoyment of it. And it's, yeah, it's, I mean, mm. obviously try and get your game out there and, and made if that's what's something you want, obviously go for that. But if you enjoy making games, I think that can be rewarding in of itself. Mm. And you can know that you've made, you know, something good. Yeah. From the RPG side, mm-hmm. and obviously this is going to be different to the board gaming side, because the board gaming side is definitely more loyalty focused. Yes. Uh, whereas the, the RPG side is, tends to be more commissioned. Yes, yeah, so you get paid kind of per, per word for a writing job or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, one, one thing, do check, certainly from the RPG side, if you're approaching publisher, check your contract. And my advice is make sure you are paid on acceptance of a manuscript, not on publication. Yeah, because that you can will, take... You will see that sometimes. And if that just sits on their desktop for like three years, you're not getting paid for three years. Mm. Whereas on acceptance, as soon as you've handed it in, assuming there aren't any major problems with it, you're going to get paid. Yeah. And that is that is something keep an eye out because it does catch some people out and it's not a fair way to do business, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think, well, we've had recent things in the news about unfair business practices. Um, yeah, And I yeah. think because uh, the games industry, both tabletop uh, RPGs and board games, is an industry people really want to be in. And so mm. sometimes people let things slide and some behavior from employers, they kind of, they're like, yeah, that's not great, but I really want my game to be made and there's limited opportunities. So, yeah, so yeah. I think there is, you know, it's open to, it's a system open to abuse the way it currently yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that necessarily everybody out there is trying to rip you no, off. That's no, definitely no, no, not no, the no, case. No. Yeah. But, you know, some, some, you know, some people like I, I, for example, I'm not primarily oriented to be a business person. I know. Really, which is, thank you, Jessica. <laughs> which is you know kind of why i bring in expertise to do the stuff that you know isn't really my idiom as it were so, so sometimes you're going to find that people just they're not malicious they're just not as experienced on the business side of things as maybe they could be especially in the rpg industry yeah. if they're people like me for example you're going to find that maybe they're not quite as business like as you know Modifius, if you go to Modifius or something, they've probably got standard contracts and all this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Although we do have that yeah. in publishing, but you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not saying I'm awful at it. <laughs> um, I think, you know, over the years I've learned yeah, a few yeah. things. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I think I'm smarter than your average bear, but, you. you know, I do I do know when to bring in the expertise. Okay. Okay, so that's kind okay. of our recommendations as a publisher, what we'd say, how we'd like people to kind of approach us and our tips for that. Hopefully you find it useful. But done. Yeah, done. Apparently, I now have to read this to you. This is the official podcast of Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG news, which you can find at enworld.org. You can find show notes at morris.podbean.com or wherever you found the podcast. If you feel like they deserve it, you can support the show on Patreon. In return, you will receive exclusive bonus content. Just go to patreon.com slash Morris. If you're interested in his babbling nonsense, you can follow at Morris on the Twitter. Send your emails to morrispodcast at gmail.com. Not all of your emails, just the ones you want us to see. That's it. I'm bored now. You can go away. Shoo, off you go. Goodbye. Get out of here. Do you have any other tips or recommendations on RPG writers approaching publishers? Uh, always wear a clown costume, number one. Increases your chances by at least 100%. Silence. Yeah, I'm just... That look I'm is... just keeping quiet to just allow... Make it easier for Daryl to edit it out. Are we done? I think we're okay. done. Okay.